So kids in particular, but adults too, uh, have you ever heard the saying, there are no stupid questions? You ever heard that before? I don't know, maybe a teacher or a boss or a parent has said that to you before. There are no stupid questions. And when someone says there are no stupid questions, they are trying to let you know that questions are good. It's good to ask questions. That discovery of something new is a good thing. That you don't know everything and that you have to ask questions and explore to find out new things. And even the most mundane question is something that should be asked if you aren't sure what the answer is. This is why people say there are no stupid questions. They want you to ask and to learn and to grow. This morning, I think we found a stupid question. In our text, the Sadducees ask Jesus a question, and from Jesus' answer, I'm pretty sure he didn't think it was a good question. He doesn't say, that's a stupid question, but it's pretty clear from his answer that he thinks it was a stupid question. So let's read from Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 44. There came to him, that's Jesus, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offering for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given to marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot, be, they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Whose son is the Christ? But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. How is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, help us to 
understand. Help us to not only be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, RUF campus pastor at Pitt, Gavin Breeden, preached and continued in our series in Luke called Certainty in Christ. And in the text that he was given, the scribes and the chief priests were scheming against Jesus. They had a plan to get Jesus in trouble with either the people or the Roman authorities. They sent spies to watch, and they asked a question. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? To answer, Jesus asked for a denarius, a day's wages, and the cost of the tribute. Whose likeness and inspiration and inscription is on it? Jesus asked. It's Caesar's, they answer. So Jesus answers, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. We saw that the civil authority has its good and proper place, that we are to honor, respect, and even serve those who are in authority over us. But we also saw that their power and reach is limited. They don't have ultimate authority over you or me. Only God has that authority. Likewise, we are not to give too much of ourselves, philosophical allegiance, hopes, dreams, time to the civil authority. That too is ungodly. While Caesar's likeness and inscription is on the coin, God's likeness is in us. And in Christ, we have his, ins his inscription written on us, a child of God. This morning, our text is in the same context, the temple courts where Jesus has been teaching. And this time, instead of the scribes and the chief priests, it's the Sadducees' turn to try and trick Jesus. We see that those that make up the Sanhedrin, that's the, the court of the Jews, the Pharisees, which the scribes belong to, the chief priests and the Sadducees, all now have a common enemy in Jesus. They are enemies of one another in a way, but now they all have a common enemy in Jesus. And even though they don't agree and get along, they agree on this. Jesus must die. The party of the Sadducees included lay people. They came from wealthy and privileged families in Jerusalem. And religiously, they were completely devoted to the temple, but sociologically, they were cut off from the rest of the people in many ways because they, many of them, were attracted to Hellenism or the Greek culture. They were considered theological liberals by some because they denied the resurrection and the existence of angels. They held to the written code of the law, especially the Pentateuch, because of the sacrificial instructions that were contained in the five books of the law. And they considered the oral code a deviation. So this meant that they were theologically opposed to the views of the Pharisees, which the scribes were a part of, regarding the oral law and doctrines such as the resurrection and their stance toward the Greek and Roman culture. And so this gives us some needed background to not only understand what's happening behind the scenes, but also Jesus' teaching as well. Many people come to this passage and think it's about marriage. They get so focused on marriage that they miss what the text is actually about. 
It's about the resurrection. And so we must ask ourselves, do we believe in the resurrection? I mean, do we truly believe in the resurrection or is it kind of a philosophical thing that like the Sadducees is like, yeah, maybe yeah, it's kind of, a, kind of a nice idea, but hey, that doesn't really happen. People don't come back from the dead. People aren't raised to new life. Do we believe in the resurrection? Do we believe in this fundamental doctrine of faith in Jesus? But before we get to the main point of Jesus' teaching, we do need to address this issue of marriage. Because I'm sure many of you would be very disappointed if I didn't talk about what Jesus means by this text when he talks about marriage. The Sadducees ask a question about a particular kind of marriage, the Leverite marriage, trying to trick Jesus. Leverite marriage was given in the law of God to make sure that the lineage of a man would continue, receiving the benefits of God's promise and the blessing of land. But it also protected women from becoming widows and being destitute within that cultural context. So it had a multifaceted use of this idea of why a, a brother would marry his brother's wife if he died before having children. And the question that they ask is really a dumb question. It really is. It's analogous to how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And because it's a dumb question, Jesus doesn't actually answer it. Instead, he gives some insight into the resurrection. And at first glance, Jesus' words seem pretty clear. No marriage in the renewed earth. And yet, there is disagreement within the church on what exactly Jesus is saying. And you can kind of understand why there might be some disagreement here because think of this. If the new creation is, full, is the full redemption and exaltation of the fallen creation, if all that was originally good is redeemed and exalted better than ever, why is one part of the original good creation done away with, right? Because marriage wasn't instituted after the fall. It was instituted before the fall. We will still worship. We will still rest. We will still work in the new creation. Marriage and intimacy is the one thing which this one verse seems to indicate will not continue. Some would question the idea that Jesus is saying no marriage in the new creation because they consent that the issue is not marriage in the new creation. The question is about Leverite marriage, that particular kind of marriage in Moses. So when Jesus says, we will be like the angels, neither marrying nor being given in marriage, he is talking about this Leverite marriage. And he looks at angels because angels don't die and we won't die in the new creation. If we won't die, why would there be Leverite marriage? And some would say that Jesus uses angels as an example here, possibly poking fun at the Sadducees who didn't believe in angels. Also, some would say that Jesus doesn't say marriage won't exist, but that marrying and being given in marriage won't exist. The process 
the being given over to one another, and therefore they would say the actual estate of marriage itself is still intact. Finally, they would argue, we have, no, we have to deal with the fact that our bodies will exist in the new creation. Jesus in his glorified, resurrected body could be recognized by his disciples. He ate with his disciples. He was still anatomically a male. His maleness is there. It's his, he isn't a genderless being. His body still bore the scars. And yet, just as we have to answer those questions about the continuity of the old with the new creation, we also need to think of the discontinuity as well. What does Jesus mean that we are not given in marriage? The Bible uses the image of marriage being our marriage to Jesus. There's also a definite hope for those who find themselves maybe married against their will or who persevered in love alongside one who did not love them or whom they did not love. There, this a definite hope that no human marriage holds these things to be true. Finally, there's a uniqueness and particularity to the union of marriage that is difficult to understand how it would fit in the union we will all finally share in Christ. And as we come to the table this morning, it's a good reminder that the Lord's Supper is God's kind of almost engagement kiss, so to speak, to us, pointing forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb. The thing about the table before us and the table to come is that it's not just me and God there, it's you and me and all God's people in a shared union with the risen Christ. So where do we end? Where do we fall? Both of the realities that we have to wrestle with and struggle with are true in Scripture. And so for us to be able to definitively know exactly what Jesus means here is difficult. And I would extend the option of both and. That somehow both are a true reality in the new creation. That somehow there is enough continuity but enough discontinuity that what we understand of marriage is not experienced in that same way in the new creation. That Jesus is showing us, reminding us that while there is continuity between this creation and the renewed creation, there is also discontinuity. Things that we understand and normalize that will be different in a way that we can't simply comprehend. And so what Jesus really was getting at in this text is that because Jesus is the Messiah, the resurrection is real. Right? It's really not about marriage. It's really not about what marriage will look like in the new and the new creation, the renewed earth. It is that the resurrection is real. Jesus is pointing, using this ridiculous question that the Sadducees posed to him to talk about the resurrection, to speak of the resurrection. This 
topic naturally brings in this slub, subplot of the Sadducees and Pharisees at uh, odds with one another about the angels and the resurrection where the Sadducees and the Pharisees do not agree with one another on those things. And these, this controversy here that Jesus wades into, that Jesus responds to is really, if you look at it, really directed not so much at the Sadducees, but at the scribes of the Pharisees. Jesus focuses our attention on them and not the Sadducees. The scribes would agree with Jesus and how he answers the Sadducees. Jesus ignores, as I said, this issue of Leverite marriage, but addresses the question of the resurrection. The Sadducees have it all wrong. They are equating one-to-one -one this age with the age to come. And Jesus demonstrates the truth of the doctrine of the resurrection in a surprising way. He does so by going not to the prophets where the doctrine is most clear in the Old Testament, but he refers to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law, he quotes from the passage in Exodus 3 that we read this morning about the burning bush, where the Lord tells Moses that he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to show that the time of Moses, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who have been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years, were still alive in God. Jesus concludes that God is the God of the living and not the dead because all are living to him and in him. And since Jesus has over the course of his ministry and now even in our text this morning made clear that his authority is from God, those in his presence and us through his word know that he is the son of God, the Messiah. Jesus is essentially saying that he is the resurrection and the life for all are living in him. Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In a few days, he will prove to the Sadducees and all others that he is the resurrection, that there is resurrection from the dead in him. And though there is no explicit mention to the scribes in this section they are the only logical ones to be addressed by Jesus about the son of David that Jesus pulls in to help us understand who brings about this resurrection. He brings in this question about the Davidic line. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? The question is not whether the Davidic line of the Messiah is true. The question is to identify who the Messiah is when he comes. Jesus has entered Jerusalem as king. He has claimed that his authority is from heaven. He has taught that he is the son of the Lord of the vineyard. He's just demonstrated his divine understanding of the scriptures so that 
those who are in the religious ruling class will not dare to ask him anymore. It is clear what he is saying. The one who is David's son is the Messiah. And he is not simply a human descendant of David. He points this out by, you, by quoting Psalm 110. Because David himself in the psalm clarifies how the Christ, the Messiah, can be the son of David. David, the author of the psalm, says, The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, David's Lord, David acknowledges the descendant of his is the Messiah, that he shall call him Lord. The Messiah is David's son and shall be called, and therefore David shall call him Lord. The Messiah is Jesus. He is the one who will sit on David's throne as was prophesied, proclaimed by the, by the angel to Mary. He is the Messiah. And Jesus ends our text after showing that he is the Messiah, the one who is before David and after David, the one who has sat on the throne of heaven, the one who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who is the resurrection and the life, he gives us a warning. He gives his disciples a warning. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at the feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. They are guilty of hypocrisy, malice, and greed. Jesus has shown this again and again, but here he repeats it once again. For the Pharisees represent the most dangerous opposition to the gospel. Right? The attitude and beliefs of the scribes are so seriously opposed to Jesus and the Trinitarian plan of salvation that Jesus ends on an ominous note. These will receive greater judgment. Notice that Jesus doesn't condemn the Sadducees, the ones who are denying the resurrection. He condemns those who, like himself, believe that there is a resurrection, but they have missed who the one is who brings the resurrection. It's interesting as we see this all in this context. This Jesus teaching about the resurrection, reminding us that the resurrection is true and real and that he is the Lord of resurrection. Notice that it's not those who get the resurrection wrong. It's not the liberals, quote unquote, that Jesus is concerned about. It's the conservative, pharisaical 
ones that Jesus is concerned about. The ones who believe that it is by their work of righteousness. The ones who believe in the resurrection. The ones who believe that there's a resurrection of the dead, but that resurrection comes because of what they have accomplished and done in life. They are more dangerous than the ones who even deny the resurrection. The ones who live with hypocrisy and malice and greed and believe that what they are doing and how they are living is actually righteous and good. Ones that believe that it is by their effort and their work, by their good deeds, that they shall attain life. They believe that it is through works of righteousness that they attend life, not the work of the righteous one and having their faith in him. You see, they want to put Jesus to death because he has turned everything upside down. They have believed that it is them, their work, their effort, their goodness, their moral uprightness that has received the reward of the resurrection. And Jesus over and over again has said, that is impossible. I am the Lord of resurrection. It is only by faith in me, the righteous one, that there is resurrection power and life in the world to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection. Lord, and that hope is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Lord, it is not as the Pharisees thought, as the scribes in their own righteousness, in their own goodness, in their own moral standing. Because even in that, Lord God, Jesus points out their hypocrisy their malice and their greed. Lord, our hope is in you and you alone. Lord, may we fix our eyes upon you, Jesus. May we know the hope of the resurrection to come. And Lord, no matter what marriage looks like in the life to come, the more important fact, the more important reality is, Lord, that we are with you and you with us. We feast at your table as your beloved. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.